Hey everyone and welcome back to the ML India podcast. We've been on a bit of a hiatus and it's likely to continue for a variety of reasons. However, what I am excited to tell you about is this episode we speak with Professor Ravindran Balaraman from IIT Madras, who is a worldwide authority on reinforcement learning and graphs. This is definitely one of the best conversations we've had yet. Spans topics from reinforcement learning, graphs, all the way up through to grad school in India. I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Professor, just for any listeners who are not aware about you can you give like a small introduction um sure hi i am uh, my name is uh, ravindran and i am a faculty in the computer science department at uh, it madras and i have been working in uh, uh, reinforcement learning course, since uh, 1994 and my primary research interest is in uh, you know looking at hierarchical reinforcement learning and all kinds of uh, uh, you know um, scaling up uh, issues with rl and looking at human in the loop rl and so on and so forth i have been at iit madras since 2004 and uh, i also head the robert pot center for data science and ai at iit madras okay so to start with the first question uh, this goes back to me listening to your talk so i remember in 2000 19 uh, you came to triplet delhi to give a talk uh, mm-hmm. at that time i used to be a intern at triplet delhi and a part of your talk was and this is where i picked up this question from that both the original back propagation paper and a very early rl paper came in the same year mm-hmm. if i'm not wrong uh, but and of course both of these fields have grown tremendously but we have seen a very large uh, increase in deep learning and there are factors like data there uh, that availability of data is more availability of compute power is more but why do you think uh, what led to deep learning being s- s- like a little bit more of a popular field which uh, students pick up a lot compared to reinforcement learning ah so this is not not even deep learning right if you go back to the 80s when in 83 both back prop and uh, and the first uh, temporal difference learning the first actor critic paper appeared right in fact uh, ironically the very first uh, uh, reinforcement learning paper was something that used neural network right so in modern day parlance you would probably call it deep rl so there was a deep rl paper before there was an rl paper uh, but uh, uh, so what happened was um, you know reinforcement learning for a long time right um suffered from almost all the problems that deep learning suffered from in terms of uh, needing a, a large number of samples and and slow to converge and not that doesn't really work well with function approximation so you needed to have you know lookup tables and therefore you had scaling problems right and there's all all, all kinds of uh, technical issues uh, uh, were there right they were plaguing rl right? and in the early days and then even when people started addressing those technical issues right the biggest stumbling block was even though there are a lot of uh, uh, you know like human learning problems which we you know or animal learning problems which which we think are motivated by reinforcement learning right uh, it, it it turns out that uh, if i'm going to look at some kind of uh, you know industrial solution deployed solutions and things like that right um, it turns out that supervised learning Uh, was a lot more amenable uh, to adapt for uh, solving uh, real problems uh, mainly because the learning was mostly offline 
And reinforcement learning, you know, the classical method said that, oh, you needed to have a, a very detailed simulator or you need to, you know, put it out into the real system to learn from it, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so that was a huge stumbling block. You either needed a very detailed model or you needed to be able to put things into the real world, right? And uh, so that's still, still a huge stumbling block for reinforcement learning to take off in a big way. Right? And so recently there's a lot of work that's happening on you know, batch reinforcement learning, offline reinforcement learning and, and so on and so forth, uh, which could potentially address uh, these issues. Right? And um, yeah, and, 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 and reinforcement learning is, 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 you know, it, it's a harder problem in some sense than supervised learning to solve. And it took a while for us to, you know, get all the algorithmic pieces in place. And uh, it's 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 an accident also. I mean, there was like you know, serendipitously a lot more progress made in supervised learning at the very beginning than RL, and therefore one took over the other. In fact, at, at uh, a long time back, there were methods for training multi-layer networks that were proposed using reinforcement learning, right? but then backdrop proved to be a lot more convenient. Right. So the RL-based multi-layer uh, network training algorithm did not need to do any gradient backpropagation. So they wouldn't have suffered from things like managing gradient problems, et cetera, et cetera. But then RL, the, 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 the algorithms being you know, data hungry and pretty slow to convergence back then, the training times would have been very long. Right? But so people actually gravitated towards uh, uh, doing this kind of uh, backpropagation-based update, gradient-based update. Right, and then so this was kind of almost forgotten for a long, long time. Literally, right? this is not to say that RL was completely forgotten. In fact, reinforcement learning was picked up a big way by the people in the neuroscience community, in the behavioral psychology community, and so on, so forth. The temporal difference methods. Uh, so you did continue to see a lot of work come uh, in those uh, uh, subdisciplines, right? Uh, those fields, actually. Uh, uh, even during the 80s and 90s, uh, uh, well, while it was slightly languishing in the AI side of things. Literally, there were like four labs in the world that were doing interesting RL back then uh, from, from a CS point of view. Uh, but then there are so many other bio uh, uh, or neuroscience labs that were looking at RL. So they took slightly different paths. Uh, but right now, I think a lot of issues are kind of, uh, you know, commingling and uh, uh, RL, or at least, uh, you know, uh, reinforced kind of methods are now used widely for looking at uh, uh, optimizing hard to compute gradients uh, in, the, in the deep learning setting as well. And of course, uh, all the function approximation and fancy things that you could do with deep learning is helping RL to grow even faster. So that one bottleneck, right? That the whole function approximation bottleneck uh, was solved, uh, uh, somewhat solved uh, by using deep architectures and that certainly helped RL to uh, pick up. Right? So it's like uh, just a combination of factors culminating and RL becoming better now. That's my Got take it. on that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, tapping into something that you mentioned, right? You, you talked about how RL is, it, it found a home in like the neuroscience fields, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's actually something that we want to talk about is that, can you tell us a little bit about some real world problems where RL shines? Cause like, we've already seen like the protein folding and yep. stuff that DeepMind is like pulling out. Right. And that yep. seems like miraculous. Um, can you like expand a little bit about that or like talk about like, some real world issues, which RL is like the fit for. So, uh, it's, it, so reinforcement learning 
you know, before uh, you got into all this, uh, you know, protein folding and other things, right? So people were trying to use reinforcement learning in, uh, as a tool for online learning, right? So all, uh, all this kind of contextual bandits kind of setting, right? Uh, which did use a lot of uh, RL ideas in building things up. So that is one part of it. And uh, so uh, more recently, we have had a tremendous amount of success in looking at RL for optimization, combinatorial optimization problems as, as for learning good heuristics, uh, for solving uh, op uh, hard optimization problems, and also looking at things like uh, logistics. Right? So in fact, I'm working with, um, uh, with, with a couple of teams now on looking at using reinforcement learning for solving uh, very large uh, uh, distributed uh, uh, warehouse management problems, right? And uh, we are looking at deploying solutions that are built using R. Right? So it's not just an academic exercise. Right? And uh, there are other places where people have tried uh, used R successfully in uh, things like combinatorial auctions right? and learning to uh, uh, solve hard problems uh, based on um, you know, uh, even when you don't have a good model of the dynamics of the world, right? Yeah, so those are uh, domains where uh, we certainly uh, are looking at using RL, right? So things that are, uh, you know, hard. Uh, so the, the problem with looking at this kind of supply chain management or logistics domain, uh, when we don't have a good idea of the models, right? When there is, can be significant unmodeled uncertainties in, in how, uh, how uh, the system responds to control actions, right? It turns out using classical method just just is not feasible. So people are certainly looking at reinforcement learning based methods, and there are now building solutions that are getting deployed in this kind of spaces. And then you know RL can replace uh, in some cases where, where where people would have traditionally done A/B testing, right? Uh, so again, uh, when there is a lot of uncertainty and unmodeled factors, people are using reinforcement learning. So, so those kinds of domains where a little bit of uh, you know experimentation is needed to discover system parameters. So RL, RL is being used. These are like more, more mundane applications, if you will, not as fancy as, uh, as cracking the protein folding problem, uh, but they're certainly real applications. I mean, if you really want to see a wider uh, you know applicability of reinforcement learning, these are the problems that we have to crack. Makes sense. Um, you talked about using RL for solving warehouse management. Um, I have a yeah. very basic question. How do you go about putting like an RL system into production? So um, the from the point of view I'm asking is that, so I know online training is like a big problem even in a supervised learning context, right? Yeah. And I'm assuming that in, in RL context, it would be even more of a nightmare. Equally a nightmare, yeah. So I mean, when, whenever uh, you say that you're going to have an online training, right, whether it is supervised right. or RL or anything, right? So uh, people who build these systems are very wary about uh, deployment, mm -hmm. right? So they're happy to deploy something that has been tested and tried and other things in the lab and rather than look at things that are uh, going to be adapting online because that's a nightmare for them for a variety of reasons, things like liability, things like you know, safety, Right, guarantees and all of that, right? So, so any kind of uh, really online adaptive systems uh, is going to be really hard to deploy. 
So in this case, what we do is we take real data from uh, you know uh, supply chain uh, like uh, uh, market demands, price movements, etc., uh, etc., et and then uh, uh, and build uh, build simulators on which we can test these algorithms. And then once these are trained on these, uh, then we deploy them. I see. At least, at least in the case of this uh, warehouse management problems, right? we can't train, we can't put it out on the real warehouse thingy and right. and test it. So I'm trying to evolve a, a process where the learning happens at a much much smaller time scale, in the sense that uh, I, I I do some kind of batch RL, like offline offline reinforcement learning with some existing database, come up with a solution, deploy it have that solution act for a while in the system without any adaptation. The simulation. Okay. Not in simulation, real system. Okay. I, so basically this is the solution that I, 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 I think is the best that I could get based on all the data that I have so far. Right? Okay. And then I, I put it out in the real system and then have it uh, you know, generate more data. This time it's not adapting, right? It's a fixed, fixed mm -hmm. algorithm where people have looked at it and said, yeah, this makes sense. Okay, you can put it out there. Okay, this is not going to cause a lot of problems. Then you gather the data uh, that is generated by the system's performance and then go back and try to adapt the, your model again. Right? Again, right. every time you adapt the model, it is done using batch RL, okay. right? offline RL. But then, right. uh, but then in between, you can actually deploy your model itself in the real world, right? assuming that it has reached certain amounts of uh, convergence and uh, some, some kind of uh, human agency can verify it and uh, certify it and then you put it out there and then you come back and you start improving your solution so i think so for, for a very complex uh, uh, domain right so i think something like that would potentially work there yeah. sorry it's, so it's essentially like swapping the model in production environment yeah. time to time yep. makes sense uh, and testing it in the simulations when during the development the development is to see there are lots of see, my right now there's a lot of literature that's coming up in batch and offline RL, right? But my favorite, which I know from a while back, is uh, this kind of fitted iterative models like fitted Q iteration and so forth. And uh, those essentially iterate over a fixed batch of data, try to do like uh, you know, Q learning on a fixed batch of data, and then and then uh, use that to uh, uh, generate. A better solution than what was used to generate the initial samples. I see. So, so just the model development is also done on the offline data. It's not just the testing, uh, but uh, the development also can be done on this real data that's measured from the system, not necessarily from the simulator. Got it. And how much does the simulation help you set? Um, parameters or boundaries so uh, essentially um, when you're deploying like a supervised learning solution you you have an idea that okay when my x metric falls behind this range i need to take mm -hmm. it off and train it again right like my distribution has shifted or something has happened i don't know what's going on um, does the fact that you have like a simulation uh, does that help you like narrow down these parameters a little bit does that affect it at all or is it like a completely separate step Good, uh, good question. I, I, I don't think the RL community has even come to a point where they're talking about model maintenance and, and other things, right? Uh, in some sense, what you're talking about is like a model maintenance setup. Right? So I have a model that's deployed and I would like to pull out, pull that out whenever needed and then 
you know refresh rate and so on so forth in reinforcement learning the simulator is literally used for you know learning the parameters of the solution right so you basically use that in supervised learning you have a set of examples somehow that is generated by 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 a human labeled uh, uh, data or or some kind of a semi supervised setup or active learning setup etc etc but then you always assume that there's a set of examples on which you are training your model right in rl if you do that that is called batch rl or offline rl and usually the set of examples that you need for your training itself is generated by the functioning of the learning algorithm in an environment in the simulation environment right so it's it's yeah so the simulation is essentially used for doing the estimating the parameters of your solution not not just to do some hyper parameter tuning or anything that's how classically people have been using simulations in rl and um, as to the question of okay if i have a deployed system can a simulation help me in uh, in this particular kind of a workflow that i was telling you right pulling out a, a, a you know deployed model uh, and uh, periodically updating it refreshing it and plugging it back in right uh, that kind of a setup uh, it's not entirely clear i mean how what role a simulation can play and, and you, you you can i can hypothesize and what can what role simulations can play here but if you're asking me is there a well established notion of this uh, answer would be no makes sense uh, to segue more into uh, your journey with rl professor what was it that sparked your interest in rl when you was a grad student uh, why did you choose to start working in rl rather than any other field uh, okay so when i went finishing as my undergrad right so i wanted to you know i mean ai was hot back then right? so neural networks are very hot um uh, and uh, so i started reading up on neural networks because i really wanted was really fascinated by this whole idea of uh, you know i mean reading a lot of science fiction and asimov and other things right so really really fascinated with this whole idea of uh, machines being like human level intelligence right machines achieving human level intelligence and so on and so forth but by the time like in the early 90s right so when i was getting into uh, grad school uh, neural networks had progressed to the point where the understanding had evolved to you know okay these are very efficient ways of doing optimization with non linear parameterizations blah 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 and all that right so and then you start reading that and then go hmm, come on this doesn't sound like what humans do i spent i spent about a year and a half or so you know reading up a lot on neural networks and working with uh, in and back then and then i said mm, okay this yeah this is all fine uh, but uh, you know uh, this is not uh, what i was really looking for and then i came across a few uh, a few papers that were talking about uh, the use of uh, you know temporal difference models in uh, trying to explain how monkeys learn like reed montague's paper Right. and and those like uh, some of the early pioneers in using temporal difference learning in modeling dopamine firing in the brain and things like that right and i thought hmm, okay this sounds interesting so let's let's try to learn more about it right and then that's how my journey into rl started uh, in fact when i when i started learning reinforcement learning my advisor was was not even working in reinforcement learning at the time my my master's advisor of course my not my phd Uh, my master's advisor at IAC, right? Sathya Kirti, but he gave me the freedom to explore whatever I wanted to, and he actually also learned RL along with me, and is much smarter person than me, so he learned faster than me. 
so at some point of time i started learning haral from him and uh, so so then that's how i got started looking at reinforcement learning as coming from my motivation coming entirely from the neuroscience side of things right and then of course i went to amherst and uh, started working with uh, andy barto and resetten right and so that completely you know pushed me into the more ai style of looking at uh, rl and uh, partly because i mean i just never could wrap my head around biology so Uh, so we we ended up doing uh, more and more of this right and uh, then uh, during my phd days i started uh, again looking at uh, this whole notion of how humans don't learn at uh, uh, you know we don't learn at one level of granularity so uh, for us uh, we, we we in fact very seamlessly move between different ways of looking at things right so there's this uh, example that's given in the Uh, in the rl book about uh, people driving so the question is okay where where does the agent stop right and where does the environment start so when you are driving you can think about you know uh, your car your, your foot pressing the pedal for accelerations and brake as your controls right and the, the amount of uh, you know the, the the angle on the steering wheel and so on so forth this could be the granularity at which you are thinking the other granularity could be that okay do it on left here or do it on right here right you don't worry about how much how much we have to brake how much you have to twist the steering wheel by when you make decisions to go left or right right and uh, the other other level that you could be thinking is okay where am i trying to get to right okay, should i go from uh, you know uh, from adyar to wherever right so mylapur so i i'm basically thinking at that level of granularity at, at some point so when i'm driving a car i'm thinking at all levels of granularity and in fact when i finally actually do the actions i'm doing it at an unthinking level where my neurons are firing and my muscles are twitching and you know pulling the pedals in one way or pulling the steering wheel in the other way and so on so forth at that point it's actually unconscious uh, but at, as a baby if you give if you ask the baby to push something you know, it, it won't be able to even that is a learned behavior Uh, but it's learned so well that it's become almost subconscious for us right so humans are so good at you know learning and reasoning at these kinds of multiple levels and uh, so the, the question of course uh, to ask is how would you do this computationally right so there is uh, again when i was starting my phd uh, uh, round about that time the first couple of years of my phd there's all this work that was coming on hierarchical reinforcement learning uh, but then uh, It's a whole bunch of questions to ask about how humans would, uh, you know, internalize these uh, hierarchies, and how do I know which part of the hierarchy is useful when, and how can I uh, actually identify situations when I'm transferring from one hierarchy, one one problem to another, so on and so forth. So there are a lot of questions to ask about what is the fundamental nature of representation that we have in our mind, uh, and how do we identify things are similar or not. and so i started working in that direction and so came up with all these notions of similarity uh, and then when 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 one one solution can work in another situation and so on so, so that's basically how i got into doing all kinds of rl stuff and i've been doing hierarchical rl since then since mid 90s well um can you talk a little bit about this 
idea of uh, representations a little bit um i come from a very supervised <laughs> learning background and representations to be yeah. as an nlp guy means word vector but <laughs> sure right? sure uh, so you're okay mm-hmm. but let's 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 give you a more uh, uh, yeah so the way in fact technically the way i modeled this was was as projections right uh, so this all this kind of distributed representation learning and all that is, is a lot more uh, fancy right? i mean yeah, we, we, we didn't have this notion back then right so representation learning as as a neural network uh, you know looking at the last but one layer of the neural network and all of those things yeah those those people understood back then uh, but uh, so the representation in my case was let's say that i i i want you to solve a problem right so when you are driving a car right so i'm asking you to so since i started with the car driving example let's just stick with it right so i'm asking you to you know make sure that uh, you are driving down the road and making a left or something let's say you are a novice driver and then halfway down the thing i ask you okay did you notice the color of the shirt that guy was wearing at the third lamp post right you wouldn't know yeah because you were not paying attention right right so you are very focused on what are the factors right if that guy had actually stepped onto the road you would have probably noted him right mm. even then if i ask you hey what was the you know there was that guy wearing a shoe or or slippers the guy who stepped in front of your car you would say oh, what that idiot no i didn't notice what he was wearing why should i i was just worried about breaking on time mm. right so this is what i mean by representation right so when you are talking when you are trying to solve a problem you are only focusing on the factors that that are important that are going to have a direct impingement on the uh, quality of the solution that you are going to drive right if you have not seen the guy step onto the road right you 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 would have probably hit him right but since you saw the guy you are happy but you don't really worry about what they were wearing even though technically you would have been receiving that input right your uh, i mean your uh, eyes would have been seeing it but he just didn't notice it you didn't record it right and humans are so good at doing this we, we kind of in fact we are so good at even thinking that we saw things that were, that were not there but that's a different <laughs> different issue uh, but uh, we are so good at ignoring what we see right so this is what i mean by representation it's at a higher level it's a meta level right i'm not talking about the low level representation that uh, you know very popular now when people talk about representation learning right uh, so that is not what i was talking about earlier of course we do a lot of that now uh, because uh, it's uh, given that neural networks have become the substrate on which you build all of these things right uh, the deep rl setting and so on and so forth right? it's become imperative that you have to start thinking about uh, you know the 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 kind of a distributed representation sense for uh, modeling all of these things i'm talking about but uh, but if you if you want to relate it to the uh, the modern terminology the closest would come to attention closest con- concept would be attention vectors how does this idea of um representation or attention how does that pan out in terms of like the actual um rl code i i guess code is uh, may not be the right way but uh essentially the structure of how the rl algorithm is working like so, how the data flows and affects the yeah, so the way, to, the way to think about it is the following right so you have you have an underlying real truth right i mean there is underlying world right 
but then mm. at any point of time when i'm actually looking at uh, the world to make a decision right so i am going to look at some function c of that underlying world x right so at any point mm. of time i i give you a phi of x so now there are parameters to the phi which could be learned by the agent right and it did not be a single phi that could be a phi 1 phi 2 phi 3 it could be different functions of the underlying uh, underlying world and uh, which i am looking at in order to make my decisions right so if you think of I mean, let's let's take a like a deep q network i'm i'm not sure if you guys know about the deep dqn uh, so one way of thinking about a deep deep uh, network uh, that learns representations for rl is the fact like the first the all the layers of the neural network except the last but one layer right are essentially learning this phi function that gives me a representation and then i feed that into the last layer which is basically learning some kind of a linear function approximator with the softmax on top of it uh, that gives mm -hmm. me whatever uh, is the final output that i want okay so learning that phi is essentially what the representation learning would reduce to and depending on uh, the various kinds of tasks that uh, that a single agent is looking to perform you might want to learn different kinds of uh, representations i see and then you could have like multiple networks all feeding into one linear softmax layer or, or essentially would sure. would every yeah. represented but everything by one that i subnet? did was pre deep networks right i mean all those right. old work that you know all pre deep network if you want me to put that in the deep network setting yeah sure all of these could potentially have a, a single body and multiple heads right uh, and each hmm. head is being specialized to a different uh, uh, task right task. but Uh, sometimes uh, you know you might you might yeah not just a single like a single layer in the head you might want to have multiple layers in the head so that you can you know condense the signal even further right and and, and other 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 cases you know i'm i'm not a huge huge fan of end to end training right if you can get it done that's great Uh, but i think uh, typically when people you know uh, too focused on end to end training they tend to ignore a lot of domain information that's available to them right so if that is a way to you know inject that domain information say okay hey if you are going to be solving this problem i know that you know these are all the features that these are all the parts of the input that you don't have to look at right if that's a, the way that i can inject that into the model right easily maybe there is a masking function that i could do or or other things right uh, uh, i think that that would be a better way to do this than say that okay there's a single body with multiple heads and then a lot of shared neurons etc etc so, i mean it's not that people have completely thought through what is the ideal neural architecture for hierarchical rl yet Okay. Mm -hmm. Everything that is out there is is pretty uh, pretty uh, naive, in my opinion. All the hierarchical RL architectures out there are pretty naive, but many of them do use a, a large shared network with multiple heads. But I think um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. So taking a step back, since you've been involved in the field for so long, um, can you tell us a little bit about what were the like dominant approaches before deep RL became such a big thing? like uh, obviously you you would have some sort of function approximator that your agent is exploiting right um but like yeah. more like some landmark moments in rl if we put it like that like how what are the landmark moments in rl like if we look at uh, if i can give you like a deep learning uh, 
maybe parallel like you know the back propagation happened and then we figured out gpu can be used and then image net happened and the deep learning paper came in 2016 my god that is a major condensation so from after 83 <laughs> it was 2000 yeah okay <laughs> Okay, I don't know what it kind of seems that way, right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's, sure. So if you want me to think about it that way, right? So then uh, the 83, you know, temporal difference learning was proposed, right? So that was a huge, uh, I mean, that, that's kind of the start of the field of RL, if you will. Then uh, the next big step would be uh, uh, what's called Q-learning, right? So uh, this is proposed by uh, Chris Watkins, and that was in uh, 89, if I'm not mistaken. And so the, the nice thing about Q-learning is that not only is it a, was it a very convenient algorithm that can be used for model, completely model-free RL, uh, but it also had, uh, you know, the one that really formalized the connections to, you know, MDPs and operations research and so on and so forth. Right? So that kind of completely changed the way you looked at reinforcement learning instead of looking at it as being motivated completely from behavioral psychology and trying to solve some kind of secondary conditioning uh, uh, problems and so on and so forth. You kind of now start looking at it in terms, oh yeah, okay, here is the MDP. And then you have these value functions and then you're trying to learn these value functions by drawing samples. Let's give a completely new way of looking at and uh, looking at RL, right? So that's something uh, that happened with uh, Chris's uh, work. And, um, I mean, I, I, I have a personal bias towards uh, uh, looking at um, uh, the, the hierarchical RL part, right? That came uh, much, much later, right? In, in the in, in like mid nineties, right? And uh, so in between uh, the enforcement learning was looking at a variety of different things, right? So we learned to do uh, better sampling and there was uh, 88 uh, Williams came up with this policy gradient approach, right? So that, uh, I mean, that, kind of uh, uh, laid the grounds for a lot of gradient-based uh, RL approaches later, right? But uh, that was uh, one, one of the uh, major uh, events back then. And uh, then there's all these results that were coming out that uh, letting us understand function approximation and RL much better, right? Uh, for example, in 92, there was uh, some work that talked about, uh, 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 you know, looking at uh, eligibility traces and, uh, uh, Q-learning and, and showing that you can do control uh, over longer uh, time horizons. And then uh, I think one of the key uh, uh, landmark things was the 96 paper uh, by Ben Van Roy and Sitsiklis uh, on functional approximation and RL, right? This is the first time people actually tried to show something formal in terms of, okay, linear functional approximation with reinforcement learning will actually work. Uh, but you know, there are some caveats, right? So, uh, and then then people are, people didn't have a good handle on how to do this with uh, control. And then the early results on uh, uh, function approximation with control came in like early 2000s and so on and so forth. And then you had the uh, deep, deep RL, the DQN paper. In fact, there are a lot of small, small innovations that led to the DQN paper. DQN paper didn't just come out of the blue, right? There is this neural fitted queue. Uh, which kind of hit almost everything of DQN except the convolutional network, right? And uh, but that kind of made it really big, right? So this was uh, I think 2014, right? And uh, and uh, then uh, you have this whole slew of uh, uh, deep RL breakthroughs that are coming after that, right? So you have the Atari thing that came, and then AlphaGo, and then the StarCraft uh, uh, solutions, and then the London Underground navigation kind of thing, which uh, which didn't use RL that much, I suppose. 
and then you have this alpha fold right and all this um, modern things that uh, people are doing with uh, rl and robotics and all of that right so all of these have been condensed into the last five six years right but uh, a lot of very very interesting uh, developments that happened in reinforcement learning along the way i might have forgotten some and uh, uh, but yeah so i think i think i hit most of the highlights um as a follow up so you you a lot of your work has been in hierarchical rl right yep um what do you find to be the most exciting things about rl today like where do you think the most interesting avenues to be looking at are right now or like uh, what are some research gaps that you think desperately need to be filled um in the rl space or in, for the rl community so i mean we already spoke about one of these right so the the whole uh, deep neural substrate for doing hierarchical reinforcement learning right? it's not quite there yet so i don't think we have a good uh, deep hierarchical rl framework yet and i mean a lot of people are working on it i think we'll get there soon uh, but uh, there seems to be a lot of challenges uh, in, in 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 solving that right so that is one one big big challenge that we really need to address and other than that i am i mean a lot lot of interest in the community is on looking at this offline rl or batch rl approaches uh, both in terms of uh, getting it to work with uh, you know more complex robotics problems where uh, you know really getting the online setting to work is hard and uh, and then there is a related problem of you know getting all this uh, reinforcement learning done with uh, assumptions or simplifications for the simulations and then getting to work it getting it to work on the real world so what they call as a sim to real problem right so that again is a big challenge in fact partly to address the sim to real problem is what they are doing with the batch batch rl right instead of saying that i'm going to simulate the environment why don't i just take the experience from the real environment and then build these offline models so that is another big problem and the third which i am very keen on is that um you know if you think about how we do problem solving how we do reasoning right uh, it is not that at all levels i talked about multiple granularities at which we will be doing uh, our representation while driving a car but it is not like that all levels we actually learn right i don't i don't learn how to get from uh, adyar to mylapur right i mean i know a map and i can look at it and i can plan it and figure okay i go like this i go like that i get there right but the learning is more in terms of okay how do i steer the car i mean how how much should i press the pedal in right all of these things are things that i learned right so learning is at some sense a slightly lower level in terms of the the, the time scales of problem solving right and and at the higher levels right i start using some kind of symbolic representation and then start doing planning right so that is this continuum right so at some point you are in the kind of whatever is the symbolic space we're talking about i mean talking about symbolic is now becoming loaded but uh, so whatever kind of uh, symbolic representation i'm talking about right so at that level uh, doing more more deliberative like people are talking about all the system two system one all that right but i'm thinking of just doing planning right and then going down further and further down in the hierarchy and then you get into uh, uh, more reactive uh, instances where you're doing pure learning right 
And how do you actually combine, uh, come up with a uh, nice architecture where you can look at uh, uh, different kinds of uh, reasoning and learning uh, and, and tying it back to a neural substrate? Because at, at the end of the day, I think uh, you know, a lot of people are just going to come back to, come back to that, right? As, as your uh, universal uh, representation for doing all kinds of AI and learning and so on. Because at the end of the day, we have the inspiration in, in our brains, uh, but uh, even before getting to the neural substrate part, uh, we still have to look at uh, this uh, more carefully. Right? So there have been papers out there that say, oh, combining relational representation and, and, and reinforcement learning, and even there have been papers on doing this in a hierarchical fashion. Uh, but I still think they're all missing a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, and on nuances in how we do these things, right? So that uh, that we should really worry about putting it back in there. Right? So these are I think, like three directions, but not by no means the uh, the only directions uh, that are interesting in RL right now. The three that are personally interesting to me. Right. Um, actually, I want to pick your brain about this third one a little bit more um, mm -hmm. because I'm not sure I understood it. Um, <clears throat> essentially, what you're saying is that there are many different levels um, in which, say, a human would make decisions or learn. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a good understanding of how agents reach those same decisions or learn. Well, uh, or am so, I mischaracterizing what you just said? Slightly. So what I'm saying is, uh, uh, so humans are very good at using different kinds of reasoning, different kinds of... Uh, uh, decision-making systems at different levels of granularity. And we're very good at passing information back and forth among them. Right. Right. So uh, in, in, in the AI world, we probably have a good handle of how to ha use each one of these decision-making paradigms. Right. But then when I start talking about, you know, handing information back, back and forth between them, and then, you know, using what, what method to solve when kinds of uh, issues, right. Uh, uh, we don't really have a good handle of in the in, 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 in the AI system right now, right? AI community right now. So that's what I'm talking about. Not that we, we we don't know how humans solve problems. We don't, but that's not that was not the point of what I was saying. Uh, but the point was we should have a architecture that allows you to you know smoothly pass information up and down the uh, hierarchies. But with with different kinds of uh, solution me mechanisms across different levels. I see. And then you envision that a neural architecture would be able to do this, or eventually, you think we need to like hit the drawing board and come up with something different? Eventually, eventually, I suppose that something like a neural architecture should get there, right? Uh, I mean, neural architectures are doing a lot of things which people didn't think they will be able to do back in the 80s and 90s, right? For so, sure. So maybe, maybe something, but yeah. Maybe if, once we have a better understanding of how our neurons work, yeah. we'll have a better computational model for the neuron. Yeah. <laughs> but even before we get to the neural architecture, the point I was making was we don't even know how to do this in the even in a symbolic setup. Right. Makes sense. So yeah. to, in fact, I can expand on that a little bit and tell you about some recent work that we are doing since you have spent so much time on sure. it. 
so we have been looking at so this is in collaboration with uh, uh, Ram Ratrasan, Community Dallas, and Prasad Patel College from Oregon State. And uh, so we have been looking at this question of uh, hey, I have a hierarchical planner, right? But then the hierarchical planner, typically the way I, the hierarchical planners are set up is you know you have you have different kinds of methods uh, that uh, execute certain actions in the in, in the world and achieve certain goals. Right, and then you have these uh, the hierarchy, right? So methods at the higher level can 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 call operators at the lower level, and the operators do do things uh, in a fine, more final granularity. They pay attention to more more uh, clauses, more more attributes of the world, while the methods do something lesser. And then you keep going down, right? So methods could call methods, those could call operators, which finally uh, make changes to the world. Right? So this is the this is kind of a hierarchical planning setup, right? So what we think, what we have now is, is a first attempt at an architecture where the uh, the methods are pre-specified for you, but then the operators themselves are not known fully, right? So when the methods start reasoning, they come to a point where they have, you know, they know that they need an operator because they need to actually change the world to go from one point to another, and uh, at that point they learn the operator, but the information that is passed down to the operator is essentially not only what is the goal the operator has to achieve, but also the attributes that are most likely to, in, uh, to impact what the operator has to learn. Right? So in some sense, I pass you the representation that I was talking you about. Right? So the planner not only plans what should be the goal for the uh, RL agent to learn to solve the bigger problem, uh, but the planner also kind of determines what should be the approximation, right? What should be the abstraction level that the RL agent should be looking at to achieve that goal. And so it gives it to the RL agent. Now, the advantage of doing this is because the RL agent is looking at a very, very small part of the input space, right? When I'm trying to solve a slightly different problem in, through this whole setup, the RL agent is already, you know, learned for solving this new problem because it, all the irrelevant information that has changed, right, is not being passed on to the oral agent. So, for example, if I just say that, okay, I have to take a, you know, uh, you know, a, 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 a file from one room to another in an office, right? I have to plan how to do this because I know the the office uh, layout. But then that, that that might be an operator that says, okay, pick up the file, right? So that's the only thing that I'm learning, and I don't care about where I go and whatever, right? right. So if I learn first to go from room one to room two, right, and now take the file from room one to room two, now I have to solve the problem of going from room five to room seven with the file. I might have to replan the solution because room five and room seven might be connected in a different way, but I don't have to relearn how to pick up the file, you know, how to open my hand, grasp the file and from a robot point of view, because I already learned it when I did the previous one, only because I had ignored the fact that the file was in room one, right? And so, the fact that I could ignore the fact that file was in room one is actually told to me by the planner. Got the it. planner says, so oh, what I really want you to do is pick up the file. And at the beginning, the file is on the table. At the end, the file is in your hand. The fact that you are in this room doesn't really figure in anywhere. So go ahead and learn. So that that so that's the nice thing about it, right? Because the whole question of figuring out what is the right abstraction to learn on, right? I, like I was telling you something which I have been thinking about since my PhD days, right? Uh, it's kind of decided for you by this point. Right. 
because the only the planner cares about that the agent will only learn like the set of composable actions yep yeah i see actually this is pretty pretty hot of the press kind of thing it's under review still so mm-hmm. i mean thank you for sharing that with us then yeah yeah okay so moving on to maybe some more uh, general uh, graduate studies related question mm-hmm. uh, one thing and this is not like a question a series of question we want to dig you through to get a better understanding of maybe uh, the problem picking and finalizing process so let's say if mm-hmm. a brand new phd students come to you today uh, what would be some interesting directions you would try to point him to what would be your instructions to starting instructions to him or her and then maybe we can dig deeper into this okay so i mean if a phd student comes to me directly i mean i would be pointing yeah, like something interesting in rl or in graph uh, and learning on graphs right in graph neural network and so those are the two areas that i doing a lot of work in right more recently hmm. uh, but um, in general right so i would okay i would basically point the student to perhaps a couple of problem domains which i think are currently interesting right i mean we're talking about at a phd level right not like a not a, not at a masters yeah yeah we are at a phd level so we know at least we have a time horizon of a couple of years to solve the problem yeah, ex- yeah. exactly so i'm not not going to talk about a master student master's research student who should probably be pointed to a more more concrete problem right saying that okay here is uh, what i think we should yeah. be working on go go you know pick up references mm-hmm. and start working on it so the phd yeah. student i would probably say okay these are two or three topics which i think are very interesting okay in fact for one of my students i did that i i said causal rl uh, seems to be very hot now and uh, that is one area to look in and the other one could be this kind of offline uh, rl uh, solutions Uh, because he wasn't too keen on looking at hierarchies and okay? uh, then i said okay if causal rl if we get something interesting then maybe we can look at hierarchies and then he went went oh. away and what i really would like people to do is do a lot of reading right? your first yeah. first few months right you should be reading at at, at an insane pace right? oh. so when i tell people that in my first year in my masters actually i don't i don't i don't have a count of it uh, normally but it so serendipitously it turned out that at the end of my first year in my masters we actually wrote a survey paper on reinforcement learning mm-hmm. so i i know exactly how many papers i read because we cited all of them mm-hmm. at, at least the lower bound right and my first year i had read 140 papers okay and i tell people yeah. they go wow 140 papers in a year okay fine okay let us not aim so high can you read three papers a week makes sense that's manageable and that is hmm. basically 150 right hmm. which you just have to keep at it week after week and if you goof off for a few weeks in between you'll end up with 140 right <laughs> so yeah so it's not it's not as as uh, you know daunting as people think it is right yeah in fact three a week is actually very low when you're starting a phd yeah i would i would say that you should be reading 20 a week <laughs> Right? Sorry, what? Two, two papers a day. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what are you doing? What else are you doing with your life at that point? Right. So, uh, I, I, I mean, so there's nothing like reading. 
to get you started on the field right i mean there's no osmosis mm-hmm. that's going to happen right so so i mean reading two two papers a day is very hard when you start off right doing two or three mm-hmm. in a week is a good thing to get to but after a while right after you have been in the field for like a year year and a half you are going to see that you can read two papers a day yeah that makes a little more sense <laughs> yeah. right so so at that point you you probably be reading two two papers a day in fact mm-hmm. uh, when we were in grad school right right after an icml or a neurops happens right we will be doing mm-hmm. this right people will yeah. be just pouring over the proceedings and looking at all the papers that are of interest to the group and then we'll mm-hmm. be reading it and discussing it in the lab meetings and so on and so forth right i mean it's very hard mm-hmm. for you to do that first you know reading your first paper it probably take a long time right but then your third mm-hmm. year in your phd right you are very quickly scanning through these papers and then going to the lab meeting and giving a summary of these thesis papers and then say okay maybe we should pick two three papers and spend more time with it later on so but so read a lot right so but then uh, completely you know undirected reading is mm-hmm. also going to be something very difficult right so this yeah. is why i like the phd clinic idea so 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 much hmm. so what they are doing now uh, right so pk's uh, initiative so you're getting all these people to come in so you come there and you talk about various things that you have looked at right and then people giving you gyan i think that's a great idea uh, but so getting back to what i will tell students right so basically i'll point them to two or three interesting directions and then ask them to start reading some papers on it dig hmm. deep so this gives two things it gives them an exposure to the different problems that uh, people are looking at in the field and the second thing it gives them a training to you know read papers and you know present ideas and figure out what is interesting in that so and then at the end of the day we so in fact it happened in one of my phd students that i said let okay let us do work on either you know i'm interested in looking at uh, hypergraphs right and here are a couple of things that we have already looked at in the group then you can probably build on top of it or i'm interested in looking at multi layer graphs uh, so go read up on both and let's see what direction we want to take up right and look we can come up with interesting problems in both and then he basically started working on both and he actually has interesting results on both now <laughs> so so we have a couple of papers already out on hypergraphs and maybe one two papers on multi layer graphs and we're writing one more and it should be done with that uh but uh, so there are some things that we were stuck with one of one of my former master student wasn't able to solve the problem he read it and then he wrote a paper uh, i mean with work with some other people in the lab and then they managed to you know, get around some crucial difficulties that we were facing so so completely undirected reading is is hard because you don't really know what 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 is a promising direction to read in you might read on something for like 6 months and then find out that people have solved all the easy problems there and whatever is left is too insanely hard for you to solve on your own so directed this little bit of push from the guide right and read and 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 other thing i think i made this point earlier in our uh, uh, chat uh, with pk also i hmm. did mention that uh, you have to talk a lot to your lab mates your peers right Uh, hmm. If you don't have a large group uh, in your uh, organization, that becomes hard, and that's one of the points I was making about Indian uh, academia hmm. is that our peer groups are very very small. Uh, but luckily, you know, world is getting smaller, so and people are happy to talk and help. You know, there is this whole openness uh, in the ML community, which is very hmm. very nice and refreshing. I don't think any other community puts out so much software, right, for other people to build on top of their work. 
Yeah. And sure. so if you could you could reach out to people and you know talk to them about their work and and other things. Right? So talking a lot is something that you have to do. And don't I mean as a matter of routine, right? I wouldn't advise picking up a problem on your own and working on it for your PhD. Do talk to your advisors. Hmm. Right? Once you've identified what you think are interesting directions, right? Uh, so your advisors got there because they have a lot of experience. And uh, so go back to them and tell them, hey, look, these are these are what I think are interesting directions to explore. What should I do? So expanding upon that, uh, the idea of uh, so when a student has spent some time doing the directed reading and yep. there is the cycle of between you and the student to filtering out the problem. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. What kind of filters are you using to, let's say, narrow down? So maybe the, the capability of student itself, the time horizon of the research, of course. Yeah. What does you are looking at? Uh, do you have like a quantitative way to define that process which people can use to filter out problems once they have some? That's tough. Okay, there are a lot yeah. of factors that go into play here. Uh, first thing is uh, my sense of right. What is the capacity for us to make a contribution in that area? Right, and hmm. that is something very uh, diffuse. You know, I mean, it's not something I can quantify. I can't, I can't say there's a very algorithmic way of doing this, right? Yeah. You start discussing this and sometimes just things click and then you say, oh yeah, I think there's a very interesting direction to explore and then we start going down the path. Right? Hmm. And so that is very hard to quantify. And of course, uh, the student's interest and the amount of learning the student has done certainly figures into it. In fact, I might tell the student, okay, the very interesting direction to push in, but, but your math skills are not strong enough to do anything interesting here. Maybe we should look at something more implementation oriented. And Makes sense. Those, those kinds of uh, factors also figure in there. Mm -hmm. And I also work a lot with, uh, with the industry. Mm -hmm. right? So sometimes the problems are, you know, really interesting problems that come up in discussions with, uh, with uh, industry collaborators. Right? And at that point of time, we basically say, hey, look, I think this is a problem which none of the existing methods are going to solve. So let's, let's you know, buckle down and try to solve this problem. Right. In such cases, uh, I, the whole thing kind of gets slightly inverted, right? Instead of reading the literature and trying to find a direction to move on, right? so we are now coming up with 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 with, uh, uh, with a specific problem to look at, right? and then we are exploring the universe of ways of solving the problem. Right? And uh, that also leads to pretty interesting results sometimes. Mm, makes sense. So. Um, so, so I can tell you there is a, a written down algorithm that I would use for. Uh... So uh, you said something about um, you gauge the ability for your group to make a contribution in that area yeah. or in that field, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Uh, um, I guess a related question to this is uh, what do you, how do you gauge the impact of a contribution, right? Um, so I think everyone wants to be doing impactful research. And people tend to have very different ideas about what impact really means. Um, it could just be like citations. It could be like getting published at a really good venue. It could be something that is read a lot. Um, and I'm sure you have your own definitions. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, what do you constitutes impactful research and maybe how you select for those parameters? Okay. 
so when i say impactful research right uh, so getting published in, in 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 a very good venue is a is a great way of measuring impactful research uh, but uh, it's good in only one way you know i mean if you get published in a great venue then it's impactful possibly but if you don't get published in a great venue it doesn't mean that it is not impactful so for me impactful research is uh, you know solving something which the community has been trying to solve right uh, or, or which the community is not even aware is an interesting enough problem to solve and doing it in a in in a, in a fashion that uh, kind of improves your understanding of the of the field you can just look at something and say yeah finally you know i know why all these things didn't work that that also is an impactful piece of work right whether it gets accepted into europe uh, or not i mean if you if you're going to get your if your impact is completely going to be measured by those quantity right and then it becomes uh, very hard to live a satisfying life because there is so much noise in all of those okay and uh, so as long as you are doing good science uh, uh, you should be happy with what you are doing so now going back to the question of uh, how do i gauge if there is a way of getting a good uh, if my group can make an impact right uh so it's going to be colored quite a bit by uh, uh what is it that i have personally read what i have personally come across and i mean so this uh, when i say i it also is like the union of uh, all the students who are working in the lab at the time who would have presented various things in, in various group meetings and whatever i have managed to internalize and whatever the new student who wants to pick up is able to convey right and at that point if you are able to identify the 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 direction the gap at which that we need to address right and then we feel that there is a non trivial way in which this gap can be addressed it has to be something that actually makes a, you know for at least for us gives us a aha moment you know it can't be something right. oh yeah yeah that's yeah we know how to do this here is this you know very procedural way of solving it and then you get this new new guarantees and you are all done right so it can't be that it can't be just saying that okay it's a, it's a hard problem yes but all you need to do is tune hyperparameters and dissolve it right there has to be some kind of a, a little bit of an aha thing for us right and then we say oh okay cool so for, for example one of the aha things that we had recently was uh, you know trying to come up with uh, some kind of a null model for uh, you know hypergraph partitioning and whatever we came up with we had not seen anywhere before right and then uh, you know it says hey look this is really interesting so when we started on the work right i knew that there was no null model for hypergraphs at back back then it was like 5 6 5 years back right so for us you know cracking that right for hypergraph partitioning getting trying to see if we can get a null model would have been great in fact it looked like there were a bunch of people who are working with us on the same time same time and when we finally presented the paper there was another paper in the same session <laughs> that was presenting a null model for hypergraphs but the point is we knew that there was this gap and we knew that uh, we had a we had some approaches that we had done in the past right and uh, there was a way of trying to contribute to that so that's that's the way that we would decide right? this is not something that my student could have made it, uh, alone because i was aware of the previous attempts that we had made in our group and i knew that i thought that we were close to making a breakthrough so we went ahead and pushed in the direction 
right and um so yeah, sorry it's it's, it's uh, frankly to tell you it's not at a science right part of it is more uh, more intuition and uh, uh, experience as as one of my one of my uh, my teachers used to say at umass right uh, more seat of the pants than mm-hmm. than a formal algorithm to do this mm-hmm. i see so um i think going back to the point where you're encouraging your student to read a lot and you're you're getting them into um you you basically you're giving them these directed paths to say okay go out see what's been done mm-hmm. um and now you're like unifying that with your own experiences and your own background from the field and what you've attempted before um how much of that goes into telling the student hey i want you to come and like uh, read this specific set of papers that where we attempt to do xyz or is that more in the sense of well, you are expected to know this already because you've already been reading in this direction you are asking if i would actually hand my student a set of papers to read yeah i think letting them do the exploration by themselves yes yeah, essentially it, it, it varies and it depends on if there's if, if there is a uh, area in which i have been reading a lot or i or, or our group has been doing a lot of work in the past and they have been reading a lot i would hand a stack of papers um, to the student to read right in other cases uh, 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 in fact that has not happened I mean, most often we point students to starting points with stacks of papers to start reading on and uh, of course there is another whole whole different category of student that you didn't talk about i'll come back to that uh, later but uh, um yeah so we yeah so we do end up pointing students to at least a few starting papers you know uh, so for example the guy who's going to do on causal reinforcement learning i point him to some of the papers on uh, causal bandits that we have been reading and uh, then he started from there and then he has been oh, now he has read in fact is more up to date with the literature than i am right at this point uh, but uh, the so it's not a question of just saying okay here are a few keywords go read it's more more often than not okay here are a bunch of things uh, go read and, uh, and if there is if i if i think that among the directions i'm suggesting to them if there is a direction which we already explored and not made much progress on or or we are making progress on and i want this person to take it to the next level i would suggest those papers as well Uh, but i i don't i'm not a huge fan of saying uh, uh, telling a phd student this is what you are doing i would really like them to get the i really like to get the buy in from their side um in your group do you uh, push for any sorts of like knowledge transfer between teams outside of papers or is it more just like no like no you already explained we, we, right? we always point point people to hey look we're going to read this thing this guy has been doing this stuff please go talk to him also he can he can tell you give you more gyan or somebody comes and gets stuck in some some problem i say look i know that that person has actually tried to solve this in this version of the library why don't you talk to them and so all these kinds of knowledge transfer happens all the time in fact even after students graduate and leave they still we still drop them in to do this knowledge transfer so yeah So that that happens is not a question of just reading papers or writing papers together but uh, i it's it's really nice to have a group like that where you don't have to solve every problem from scratch like somebody is already willing to you know impart knowledge to you 
was that the question that you asked? I mean, I, I, essentially, I yeah. I was, I was, I was trying to understand basically. It um, seems like the most natural thing to do. So I wasn't even sure why there was a question. Fair enough. Uh, I was just trying to understand uh, essentially if you have a process in place for ensuring that this happens, or uh, if there's ensuring a way that ensuring this happens. How can I ensure this happens? Uh, okay. So the only thing I I can uh, the only way I do this is like whenever I think there are people working on something similar together, I call for a joint meeting, right? and then I get them to sit and talk with me, and then no. Then at least I know that the initial conversation idea exchanges have happened, and hopefully they will follow up on that, and then we will have other meetings, and then maybe we'll work on a slightly different direction involving all these people. Uh, yeah, but I yeah I'm not a great cop, so I'm not good at keeping tabs on whether these guys are actually working on what I told them to work. I'm collaborative things like that. It, it, it happens organically. I mean, I've never never had too much of an issue in saying that, oh, I asked these two guys to work together. They don't talk to each other. So I was telling about this other category of PhD students who I've been getting yeah. a lot of, right? These guys come in knowing what they want to do. Ready? Right? Like before they, they start the PhD? Before they start their PhD. There are people with some experience in the industry or people have been doing working in research labs, right? And then they come in saying, hey, look, I, I have this really hard problem that we have been looking at for the past three years. And I don't think I'll be able to do this uh, working alone. Uh, can I join you for a PhD and can we work on this problem together? Yeah. So I've had people come in like that. So yeah, those guys are yeah, really nice to work with because they, they know everything. They are very focused on what they want to do. Interesting. Yeah. So are these a lot of times like, uh, part-time industry people doing PhDs yep. or is it like students, you see a lot of students also like this? Um, mostly it has been either part-time people or, or guys who are you know, just been doing a master's with us saying they're getting very excited about this problem and then transferring over to PhD. So, but but people coming from outside have mostly been people from industry. Uh, on to that last part, uh, the master's part. Uh, what do you like? What are your thoughts about this? Because I think these are two different things. Somebody working in industry or maybe like in a research lab has spent years on a problem, versus uh, the same thing with masters. That maybe you do your master's thesis on something because this is something I have seen happen. You do your master's thesis on something. Typically, you are investing six months to a year, maybe in doing that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things look very interesting, very hunky-dory at that point, And that this is the problem I want to solve. Uh, but I guess when you sign up for a PhD and now you want to do it for long term, uh, like at some point you realize that problem is maybe not the way you are understanding it. Sure. So how much like you know when a student like this comes to you you are thinking about it that okay 100 percent of the time it's a student who's already working on the master's project with me so. okay makes i sense. know what they're thinking about and what direction what are possible directions we can go ahead and when, unless i'm convinced that they can do it just don't take you would tell them not to yeah makes sense uh and maybe to 
segueing this into the grad school discussion and now this is even like much uh, abstract of a question than even like <laughs> uh, just uh, how to pick problems uh, see especially in like iits and triple it here in triple it delhi a large part of student who are with us researching is ras and btech students who are mostly like okay i'm going to do this get a paper do the gre move abroad for grad school uh, so what are your thoughts in like you have done your grad school abroad of course and you have been mentoring student for in india for years now I, so I, i did my masters in india so which is also part yeah. of grad school right so yeah so what do you think are like trade offs uh, versus like benefits of doing like a grad school abroad versus in india uh, and like if a student is today trying to make the decisions what are the things you would ask them to focus on like think about before they can make that decision okay so uh yeah things are very different now than it was in the past right so but um, so there are there are a lot of factors that go in right i mean there are a whole bunch of personal factors that play play big role and uh, so putting aside those personal factors like i mean financial circumstances family uh, mm-hmm. need to travel etc etc putting those aside so i would say that the top schools in india right in the areas that you have good faculty in hmm. in fact if you if you know that when even when you are applying to the us right in the even in the past people used to say i mean you can go to the really top schools or if you know who you really want to work with right then you can go to you know a second tier school also because you are going to work with them and you know they produce a lot of good papers and so on so, hmm. so that that's the right the right thing to do so if you you should be looking at the advisor not necessarily the school hmm. right so the similar kind of advice now applies to here there are a whole bunch of other questions that i would have said in the past about oh not being able to travel to conferences being cut off from the world etc etc but that is no longer true most of the yeah. top schools right it's very easy to get connected abroad and you can go visit people everything is becoming easier and easier and the government is also putting in more money into this kind of international collaboration so those things are changing right <laughs> so idd i mean the question then boils down to okay if you're really good right and you want to do a phd with a good person <laughs> and there are enough good people in india right so if you can if you get into the right school with the right advisor go for it shouldn't worry about whether it's in india or outside right now right but then um, uh, yeah if you're not really sure and you want to explore a lot of areas so our ecosystem hasn't evolved to a point like a cmu or a stanford or something where you can go in and then have like ajar faculty to you know sample from and look look at all kinds of research that is happening and you have like 100 faculty who you'd be happy to get your phd with and so on so so we are we are at the the top indian schools i would say are at the second tier your schools like the not in the top 10 not in the top 20 not 50 right maybe in the next 50 kind of your schools right now it's sad but we are much much better than where we were when i was looking for a grad school or when my advisor my master's advisor was looking for a grad school 
so so i would i would say that uh, you should look at what areas you want to work in and see if you know if the, the right guys you want to work in or 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 around here right? and then uh, uh, go with that right and uh, of course there are a whole bunch of other things in india you I mean you get you get some scholarship right so you don't have to worry about uh, getting an ra so funding and other things are easier in some sense of course the the volumes are not that high uh, but uh, you also have to adjust for the cost of living but good students right we we now have a sufficient amount of scholarship right whether it is the pmrf or uh, any of the other kinds of support that all the various colleges give give people right you don't have to worry about settling for 20k 25k scholarship or something like that you get a lot more of course not certainly not in the foreign country levels but uh, you can still think of something of the ballpark of 70 80k per month so all of these factors i mean uh, uh, shouldn't shouldn't figure in but sometimes it does um so i would i would go back to my recommendation right so pick i mean if you have an interesting advisor that you would work with in india work with them right if you think that oh yeah there's nobody here i really want to work with this other guy then i want to go there okay um, i'm assuming assuming that when you she says that you're going for a phd you know what area you want to work in right if you're yeah, completely sure. clueless about it uh, think twice about the topic doing the phd <laughs> Yeah, For sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. then uh, maybe go to a school which has a much more broad base, right? Right. Um. So, given that labs in India tend to be a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. um, they may not necessarily have like the publication footprint that lets people find out about them very easily. So, do you have like any advice for people who are looking for like advisors? Um. what are some things that they should be like looking out for or something like that cuz i mean um in an ideal world i would be able to like open up cs rankings and see iit madras number 3 or whatever right and but we're a little ways off from that yeah um so do you have like uh, uh rather uh, have uh, okay what are some routes that students have taken to find for example you in the past right since you're getting a lot of students who are very very focused and very interested in what they want to be doing holy cow man that's 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 actually tricky to answer in my case almost everybody who joined me kind of knew me before from various very circumstances right so it is not like they did a blanket search on google or something and stumbled upon me mm-hmm. um uh, no, but it's actually it's, so so i i haven't thought too much about it right like having a system like that would make grad schools in india more appealing to students yes for sure yeah. for sure i mean the, I, i really like the thing right mm-hmm. so it's like see we have certain like india events right so it's like, like acm has its acm india event and then we have this conferences various conferences that happen in very very niche areas right but then if you look at it right it's not really showcasing indian research you look at asian india right there are some yeah. amount of work that happens but you know the big big ticket speakers who are all advertised are all people from outside india so hmm. so we don't have a, a 
huge culture of celebrating our own uh, people. And, uh, yeah, this is something that we have to think about. Maybe, maybe at least for computer science, uh, uh, maybe something can be thought of. But that's a, that's an interesting question. So, how would how would a PhD student who is interested in a specific area find out without without publication counts and things like that helping them along? But then, come to think of it, right? I mean, there are people who are very good in publishing in in a specific. A niche area. I mean, if you look at CS ranking, it has introduced the India-specific ranking now, right? So if you go hmm. there, but then then CS ranking is pretty limited, right? They are very coarse-grained in some of their areas and too fine-grained in some of their areas, and right. so it's 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 like all over the place, right? So some of the really good venues are not covered by CS ranking. So somebody who publishes regularly, for example, in the multi-agent systems conference, will never get ranked in CS ranking. So, uh, so those there are no there are no perfect solutions like that. But uh, there should be like a national directory of faculty or something like that. Yeah. In, in because this is how I think about it. Even being like a grad student in, if you are in a grad student in one of these uh, institutes already. you still have like a network to reach you start knowing people you through talks or via your professor and a lot of things like this but like if i think think about myself before i got into this ecosystem of triple it delhi before that when i was an undergrad in like a small private college mm-hmm. uh, and maybe a lot of it coming from like my ignorance of being going out and looking hard enough but the knowledge of what's happening around and the academic circle of people abroad was very limited and more than that you don't i never even saw a lot of people doing it very actively uh and i guess that is something which more accessibility can change uh, yeah. see one of the things that i used to do a lot right when i was when i started off here right i used to go hmm. to these second tier and third tier colleges a lot i mean and give talks yeah. Right? Talk yeah. about you know how to do research. Talk about I mean basic tutorial topics. Talk about something cutting mm-hmm. edge, depending on how ready the students were right? at different levels. And but I used to do a lot of these talks, yeah. right? And, and partly because of that, I was actually beginning to get some good students from these colleges. Right? So that was one way of doing this outreach. But these are not scalable methods, right? Yeah. Because the number of colleges are too big. And I I used to go to the specific colleges I knew were good, and then. maybe not with one visit right you visit there five or six times and then give various talks and then you start getting good students with that right so so yeah but given this era of you know people being able to do things so easily online and uh, i think we should uh, we should start some kind of initiative there is some some small bit that are going on some universities some colleges are now started recording like this five minute uh, youtube videos and putting them online about faculty research interests and what they are working on and why it is exciting and so on and so forth and uh, and maybe we should do more more of that more systematically uh, and and publish publicize it right? i'm saying that, hey look here is this portal where you can go and find out about all this faculty in doing research in india and whatever areas you are interested in right right and have have ways by which they can it's actually easier for you to find out 
what people in uh, you know uh, 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 what people are doing second like, year US yeah. school no no i'm saying it's easier for you to find out what somebody in the second year US school is doing hmm the second year i mean somebody outside the say the top 20 yeah and it is for you to find out what somebody in an iit is doing or a triple iit is doing for sure and that's sad yeah, i agree i mean that that should change but I, i i don't know if i have a magic solution on top of my head for that hmm. yes, um i think we're mostly out of time um yeah yeah past time yeah yeah, yeah. thank you professor this was really nice talking thank to you thank you for the yeah, yeah. thank you for the questions also they they actually set me thinking yeah. thank you for listening to the ml india podcast your hosts were hitkul and karman